0: Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the letter of 1 John. 1 John, the third chapter, beginning in verse 11, and reading to the end of the chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in them. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we take the next few moments with you before your word, we would ask that you would minister to us, your people. We ask that you would show us what it is that you would have us to know from this, your word. And we ask that you would strengthen us in the confidence that is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would, even as John has written here in this passage of Scripture, that you would indeed reassure our hearts of your love. You know what is needed. And so work with what is prepared, work against what is prepared, but accomplish your will. For we want only your will, we want only your glory. And we know that if your will and your glory is primary, then the good and the blessing of your people will be in view. We long for that. And we're at your utter mercy to create that and to establish that right now in this hour. So see us humbled before you, needy, needy of your presence and of the truth that comes in Christ come and pour out that truth upon us we ask in Jesus name amen I was struck just a moment ago as we were singing being reminded of how we often need reassurance I remember meeting with a Young couple, they'd only been married a, a few years. The husband had committed adultery and it had just come to light, and the wife had just found out, and there they were in my office to talk about it. And he was doing, as a husband would do in that moment, his very best to reassure her of his love. And she was a normal wife, hurt in that moment. And you could see it. She didn't have to say anything. You could see it on her face. She wasn't sure if she could trust him. And there wasn't a sense in that moment that she was assured the words that were coming forth from his lips because something with regards to the character of his life had come out that had said something very differently. She needed reassurance. But that reassurance wasn't going to come quickly. It was going to take time. You know, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 is in prison. It's one of those unique moments because John the Baptist sends some of his messengers out to Jesus John the Baptist is having little crisis of faith, it appears, there in the prison. Because as he sends his messengers out, he says, I want you to inquire of Jesus. And I want you to, to, to ask him, are you, are you really the one that the Old Testament has prophesied? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that we've been hoping for? And you think, John... John. <laughs> I mean, John, you're the one at the opening of the book of Mark that looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Aren't you the one who's had clarity regarding who Jesus is? But there he is in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. In fact, in a couple of chapters, it will be his head that will be removed from his body. And in that moment, he wants to be sure he needs a little reassurance. You know, that's the Christian life, the need for reassurance. The need to go back over and over and over the things that we know that get shook loose over the course of our lives and of which we forget And of which we look at other things that happen in our lives and in the world and we wonder, is that still true? Or was I just deceived then? How can I be sure that what I've trusted in, what I've banked in is absolutely true when I seem to see evidences to the contrary? See, it doesn't just happen between husbands and wives. It happens between us and God. We trust God, we love God, and then something happens in our lives that doesn't seem to line up with how we thought the love of God would be displayed in our lives, and we begin to wonder, does He really love us? Are we really one of His? And we need a little reassurance. I think in a very real sense, John is writing to a whole audience of people in Asia Minor who are in a kind of emotionally unstable moment where they're asking for a little reassurance regarding the promises of God because life is not turning out the way that they had expected it to turn out. Even within the body of Christ, even among those who had professed faith in Christ, they needed a little reassurance. I believe John writes this section to give them that reassurance. I believe the whole letters to that, but I think there's something specific about this section. And I think within this section, he wants to reveal the depth of the love of God for us. And he wants to call out the love of God for us and the love of God that's in us. He wants to call it out to be displayed in love towards one another. That's what he's doing, I think, in this passage. And he he wants to challenge us and he wants to assure us all the same time because he knows that the challenge is the means to the assurance. And so as we look at this gospel passage, this rich gospel passage, I want to simply look at it in three ways with you because I want to look at love and I want to dig in deep to this nature of love that's here in this passage which I think is the focal point and one of the main tests that John puts us through. I want you to see first just the call of gospel love. We actually see that in, in verses 11 to 15 in the passage, the call of gospel love. And this is John calling the love of God that's in us out to be expressed and to be displayed to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not him saying, Love others and then you'll get the love of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if the love of God is in you, it's going to be called out, it's going to be expressed, it's going to be displayed. And so he's calling it out and he says here's the call of gospel love so that you would love one another. We want to look at what that means. And then he says I want to show you the character of gospel love. I think he does that in just the verses right there in the middle, verses 16 to 18. Here's the character of gospel love. Here's what it really looks like. This is important because love, even as Tony alluded to in our confession of sin, is defined in so many different ways within our culture. What do we mean when we say love? Biblically speaking, and I think he tells us, the call of gospel love, the character of gospel love. But then he shows us in the remaining verses, verses 19 to 24, the confidence that we should experience in that gospel love. The confidence that comes in that gospel love and I think this is really the driving point of what it is he's after he wants to test us with the call he wants to display for us the character but he wants to lead us into the confidence of gospel love that's what he wants to do in this passage so let's look just briefly here at the call of gospel love it's pretty straightforward look at verse 11 for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another that's the call Three words, love one another. That's what he says. That's what you've been called to in Christ. And it's not a newfangled message. It's something you've heard from the beginning. John loves this word from the beginning. He's been using it from the beginning of 1 John. Sometimes when he uses it, he uses it to talk about creation. This happened. You know, Jesus is from the beginning. He was the word that was made flesh. And he's speaking about creation. But mostly most recently, too, in this passage, he's talking about the beginning of when you heard the gospel. From the very first time you heard the gospel, this was part and parcel. This was part and parcel to it. So I'm not bringing something that you've not ever heard. I'm not bringing you something that's, that's in addition to. I, this was something when you first embraced Christ, you knew that the call of embracing Christ is the love of one another. And when he says that, he's only quoting the reality Of John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is Jesus. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer said years ago that here in John chapter 13, Jesus is giving the world the right to judge the authenticity of his love by the way we love each other. Isn't that remarkable? He's saying, you know that you're one of mine if you really love one another. It's an evidence, a leading evidence of faith. And Jesus has given the world the right to judge the authenticity of his love by the way that we love one another. That's the call of gospel love that's really significant now when we get to the character of gospel love here in just a minute you'll see just how deep and profound what this call actually means but we need to know right now that's the call now as he gives forth that call it's almost like john goes on a little bit of a rabbit trail here and he says hey i don't want you to be naive if you're loving one another it doesn't mean your life's going to go smoothly you know, sometimes we think that, right? Everybody just can get along. We can just, just all love each other. Life would just be sunshine and roses. It would be beautiful all the time. Now, if you know anything about the gospel, which includes a cross, you would know that that's not the case. If that were the case, then Jesus would have had the easiest life imaginable. But he didn't. And so it's the manifest evidence of the fact that this... This loving one another doesn't mean that you're not going to have hardship. In fact, I can guarantee you will. That's what John's actually saying in here when he begins to talk about the situation with Cain. Many of you will remember how Abel, a herdsman, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain, a farmer, how both men brought offerings to the Lord, Abel from the firstborn of his flock, Cain, bringing the first fruits from the offering of his ground, we're told there in Genesis 4 that God had regard for Abel's offering, but God did not have regard for Cain's offering. And this made Cain very angry. We see just how angry it made Cain, because in the next few verses following that offering, Cain spies out an opportunity while he and Abel are in the field to overtake his brother and to... Kill the Hebrew language is slaughter. It has the sense of a gruesome murder. Now John cites this story because he sees a connection. He sees a connection between the hatred of Cain towards Abel and the hatred that the world will have towards Christians. And he sees it of the same nature. He says, the reason Cain hated Abel is not because Abel's deeds were evil. See, you Christians, you're loving each other. You're being righteous. You're being faithful. You're walking in the truth. Aren't things just going to go smoothly? Oh, no, no. People will hate that in the world. That's what he's saying. Just as it was with Cain, a jealousy will rise up within us. A hatred will rise up within us so much so that we just can't stand the people who are living righteously and are experiencing the acceptance and the joy of the Lord and loving one another. It's like their lives are living rebuke to the way in which we live. And even if they're kind, we just can't stand them. And you think, oh, that's just just mean. Well, I was reading the other day on a Facebook post. It's one of those classic kind of humble brag post, you know what I'm talking about? You know, like I've done all these amazing things, praise be to God. You know, kind of done one of those kind of moments? This person had talked about an award that they just won and something great that had just happened. And there they were on their beat on the beach in this you know, in their swimsuit just looking great. And um, in the comments below was clearly a friend who said I can't stand you. Right? You seen this kind of thing? You know, I hate you. Now, there's a little smiley face, winky emoticon, you know, next to it. You know, it's clearly for fun. It's not an intended. Way. And it's funny and it's a joke. But why is it a joke? Why is it a joke? It's a joke because we know it's, it's real. We struggle in this way. Some, someone's... Good, wise, accomplished, celebrated. And we're jealous, right? We're, we're jealous. It eats us up. And we, we think to ourselves, they don't deserve that. I, I deserve that. And, and if I can't get it, I want them to fall, you know? This kind of murderous envy, John says we should expect from the world. Why? Because it's the same thing that happened to Jesus. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus. Righteous living, good living, loving living within the body of Christ and in the world will reap a whirlwind of hatred. We're always surprised by it, it seems, but the Bible's just so patently clear that this will be the case. I want you just to think back, Matthew 27. This is Jesus gathered before Pilate and and he's speaking now to the Pharisees who've handed Jesus over to them. And I want you to, I want you to hear how he describes it. Pilate says, "This, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ?" And it says that Pilate asked this because he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. You see that? He, they knew that Jesus was drawing the crowds. They knew that Jesus was getting the people to come to him instead of come to them. And they had, in a sense, lost their audience. And it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. Do You see, this led to the very murder of Jesus, the instigating of his death. John says, don't be surprised, brothers, when, when the world hates you. Did you expect that a servant would get better than his master? You know, Peter, Peter put it this way, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed he writes in 1 Peter 4, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That's an amazing statement by Peter. He says if, if the world's attacking you, if the world hates you, and it's hating you for righteousness, there might be reasons to not like you because you're sinning. So he's talking about. He's saying when, when the world hates you for doing what is righteous, for doing the right thing, blessed be the name of the Lord. Glorify God in that moment because it's evidence that the Spirit of God rests upon you. And this is why in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are preaching and teaching in Jerusalem and they're doing all kinds of signs and, and wonders, the high priest, we're told, literally, Translated out of jealousy, locks them up in Acts chapter 5 and wants to kill them, except some of you maybe remember Gamaliel, the Pharisee, gave this long speech and it ultimately led to their release, but before their release they were beaten and they were told, you can't preach Christ anymore. That didn't stop them at all. He said, you can't preach Christ anymore. And they were released. And at the very end of Acts chapter 5, this is what we read, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They counted it kind of did worthy that they were able to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then notice what it says. And every day they went into the temple and house to house, not ceasing to teach and preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. This amazing character that's been formed in the answering of this call of love despite the tidal wave of hatred from the world. Now, Friends, this is is normal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. This is not abnormal. This is not strange. When you look over history and you you see the thousands upon thousands of martyrdoms, you see closed countries and you see beheadings. This is normal Christianity if you know anything about church history. Because the servants of the living God... We're not promised that they wouldn't be treated like the master. They get the joy to be treated like the master. That God would count as worthy to suffer dishonor by his name. This is the call of loving the brothers. This is what we will reap. Now the tendency, I think, in a moment like that is to say, well, if people are not liking me, I must be doing something wrong. 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 Now you need to check your heart on that you might be doing something wrong. Sometimes we reap a whirlwind of hatred because we've sinned. But that's not the context of this passage. This is a whirlwind of hatred because we've been righteous, because we've loved. And there must be a character of heart in life that says, regardless of what it is that the world's going to throw my way in terms of hatred, I'm going to love the brothers and I'm going to live as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the righteousness of his call upon my life. Now, here's the question I really want to ask. What produces this kind of life? Well, I can assure you of this that you don't ever have or get what it is that's not been given to you. You've got to receive this. This has got to come from outside of you. This is not something that bubbles up within you because of the niceness of your personality. That's not what we're talking about. This is something that must be gifted to you by God. And this is the character of gospel love. The character of gospel love. I want you to see this in verses 16 to 18. He says, By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. Now, it's quite clear that John is here setting up a contrast between Cain and Jesus. Cain is jealous and full of envy and murderous rage and goes and destroys, while Jesus, filled with love and the grace and salvation of the Lord in terms of his mission, lays his life down freely for the other. You see, your life... It's the most precious possession that the Lord has given to you. It it is. If you don't have your your life, you can't do anything. Your your life is the very foundation, the source, and the base from from which everything flows. If it's taken from you, it's a grievous sin. But if you freely give it up, it's the most precious thing you could possibly do. It's the greatest gift that you could ever give. And he says, this is the nature of true love. That Jesus gave up his life for us. That's the character of gospel love. And so when he says to us, love one another, I want you to love one another in the way that you've been loved in Jesus. And I know that if you're loving one another in the way that Jesus has loved you, then you truly know Jesus. And if you're not loving one another in the way that Jesus has loved you, then it's in question whether or not you've ever really known Jesus. That's the point, John, is is making here and so he says i want you to think that love is sort of some sweet feelings towards general humanity or some sappy sentiment love is laying down your life for another it's it is living from from sunup to sundown in sacrificial love to one another he says that's the call of loving the brothers. Now we know this because it gets pretty practical, kind of uncomfortably practical in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How is it possible that you would see someone in need and you have the wherewithal to meet that need, and you close yourself against that need and still say, oh yeah, God's love, I just love it. It just abides me. It's just bubbling over. I'm just overflowing with it. He's saying, that's impossible for those two to be bedfellows. It's impossible for those two to work together because the very nature of the love of God is the laying down of his life for another. And when we're stingy, when we're holding what it is that we've been given back and not serving, not stewarding it for the purposes of the gospel, loving the brothers in practical ways, what's being described here as acts of mercy, how can you confess to have the love of God abiding in you? Listen, we're born selfish individuals, right? Anyone ever had to teach their two-year-old to be selfish? may ever had to do that? We've never experienced that in the certain household. It just, it's kind of built in. It kind of comes with the package. Just, you, you, they are selfish. by nature, we are seeking our own personal happiness. If you begin to see someone laying down their life for one another generously and giving of themselves, maybe even to the point of pain, that's the point in Acts chapter 2, and it's exactly the way the church lived, in selling their possessions in order to meet the needs of, of their community, the only explanation for that is that God abides in them. Why? Because that's exactly what God did. That's what he does. He has emptied, as it were, divested himself of his glory, of of his pleasure, of his joy, of the ascendancy of his position in Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2. That's the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is showing up in you, that's one of the major evidences, John says, we need to look for and pay attention to because that's an evidence of the Spirit of God in you. And if that evidence is not in you at all, to any degree whatsoever, you need to ask the question, have I ever really encountered the love of God? Have I ever truly known the Lord? Am I a son and a daughter of the king? Call of gospel love, character of gospel love. It's, friends, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, who among us feels competent, to fully carry out the call of gospel love in the character of that gospel love. How many of us can just say, yeah, those selfish impulses are gone? Uh, none of us. We're 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 a we're a, we're a mixed bag of, of of remaining sin as the apostle Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 10, and new creature in Christ, the Spirit of God that's dwelling within us. And these two powers are at war within us. And sometimes, though it is warned in the Scripture, we give in to the Spirit of the flesh. And we, we live and think and orbit around ourselves as the primary sun in which the world should exist. Rather than orbiting around Christ and his love for one another and the call of that gospel upon our lives. And yet, at times, don't you see, if you're a true believer in Christ, the reality of that selfish life of your past, dying more and sacrificial life that's found in Christ, living more, do you see evidence of that? Do you see manifestation of that? You need to see the evidences of that in your life. You need to see it. One who doesn't see it at all, John is saying, You need to question whether you've known the Lord. Now, we go through seasons. Let's continue to put it in context here. We go through seasons where there are times where we are in a rut, in a pattern of selfish behavior. We can feel it and we can sense it and we realize that we're, we're ensnared and we're caught. And then there are times where we're living in the joy of the generosity and the freedom of the sacrifice that comes in Christ. And don't these seasons seem shorter than these seasons sometimes? Right? The sacrificial seasons seem shorter than the selfish seasons. But then haven't you noticed at times where growth has happened in this? Depth of joy has happened in this? And as you've walked in this, haven't you found yourself saying, more of the Spirit, more of the Spirit? That's a great sign. It's a really great sign that you're abiding in, in Him. I just want to help you do that diagnosis on your own life. As I've said in a message previous to this, the worst thing that I think I could do in a context like this is assure you of your walk with Christ and your salvation in Christ when you ought not be assured or to deconstruct an assurance that you ought to have in Christ that I really want to see built Okay, it's the worst thing that happens so, I, so I'm walking through this but I want you to truly test yourself regarding love for your brothers and your sisters is that manifested in me now I think as John writes this to the church in Asia Minor, I think that he knows this is going to make them really unsettled. I think I think that he knows that. If I can, if I can channel John for just a second and thinking like a pastor for a minute, okay, he's going to really unsettle them. I want to right uh, afflict the wrongfully comfortable. <laughs> it's part of the work, but also want to comfort those who are afflicted. So he's seeking to walk through a path that, that honors both of those realities. And I think as he goes into the next section, he says, here's the confidence that I want you to have. And here's in some ways a surefire evidence that you're walking in Christ. When you don't love your brothers, what do you do? And when you do love your brothers, what do you do? How do you respond? And I think that's part of what he's saying as he goes into what I think is one of the most beautiful sections in the The letter of 1 John. The confidence of gospel love. We see it here in verses 19 to 24. And I want to ask a couple of questions beginning in verse 21. Here's the question I want to ask. Where am I ever going to get the confidence to walk as one who is answering the call of the love of one another in the character of laying down my life utterly for another? Where am I ever going to get the confidence to do that? Are you like me when I think... Man, I just want to go meet that need. Wait, I've got some needs. Uh, better be careful about how much I give. Man, I want to really go serve that person, but man, I have a lot of needs over here. I don't have enough time to, to do this. And I feel that tension. You feel that tension? How am I going to experience greater confidence to die to self and live unto others and trust God to provide for what it is that I need? How am I going to live that way? How am I going to gain that? I think that he he tells us, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's where I'm getting this confidence. If our heart does not condemn us, we will have confidence before God. This is what God wants for us. He wants confidence in the gospel of, of God. And I believe that this confidence is what allows us to walk in the character of gospel love and answer the call of gospel love. If we experience this internal confidence that he desires for us. I'm convinced of this because he calls us beloved in verse 21. He wants you to remember this is who you are. You are the loved ones. Think of the love that God has poured out in your life. Beloved, if your heart doesn't get wrecked with condemnation, You're going to have confidence in your walk with the Lord to answer the call of God that's upon your life. If your heart doesn't walk in condemnation. Now if confidence before God is what John wants for us, we should ask ourselves, what does that confidence look like? Well, I think he tells us in verse 22. What would it look like to be confident? This is what it would look like. In prayer, you ask whatever it is you want to ask and you know that you will receive it from Him. Because you keep His commandments and you do what is pleasing in His sight. That's confidence, friends. How often do you approach the throne of grace and go, I know the Lord's going to give this. I know that He's going to give this. And notice how He roots it in obedience and what is pleasing to God. That's incredible confidence. Because you're walking according to His commands. Now, it's only natural to ask them What commands are we to keep to know what would be pleasing to God? Well, he tells us, verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment. Here's the commandment you got to keep. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. He literally just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and obey what Jesus Christ has called you to trust Him and obey, just like the hymn writer said many years ago. Do you want the kind of prayerful confidence that ask his, ask God for all that you need, and you know with confidence that He will meet it? Then trust Him and obey Him. Do you want to be able to to live a life that's not utterly dependent upon the things of this world, but is resting solely in the love of God and His sovereignty? over the course of your life so you don't live in fear you don't hold things back you're not constantly protecting self you want to live in that way believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and obey him that confidence will come now if we trust and obey God we can have confidence to come in God in prayer we can trust that he will provide all of our needs this we know that we will have if what's the if? you know what the if is Verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us. These things are at your disposal if you're not living from a place where your heart is condemned. And so we've got to figure out what in the world that is. Verses 19 to 20, listen to what he says. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. There's that word reassure. Reassure our hearts before him for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart And he knows everything. I think that word reassurance, even as we introduce the message today, is really important because that's the reason John's writing this book, 1 John 5 13. I write that you might have assurance, that you might know that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we need reassurance, we're not confident. If we need reassurance, we're questioning, we're doubting, we're wondering. Just this week, I was able to have a beautiful conversation with, with one of the members here where I had forgotten something that they were reminding me of. And I could see it on their face that I would forgotten it, and it hurt their feelings. And I, you, you, those of you who know me, like, that's just like the worst thing in the world for Nate. And so I'm sitting there going, oh, no, no, no. So what did I do? I wanted to reassure them of my love, in a very real sense, my, my failure to do what I said I would do to uphold the, the law of what I declared with my mouth disturbed their sense of assurance that I truly loved them and cared for them. See how that works? That's what happened. It's when husbands and wives, you know, something happens and you have to reassure them that you're a lover. Children, you discipline them. And they look at you like... Do you love me? You're pretty mad right now. You know, that, that kind of moment. And you go, no, I love you. In fact, I'm disciplining you because I love you. And they don't get that until way, way later <laughs> in life. And we pray they get it eventually, right? At times in our spiritual life, we need assurance. At times, we're walking in the reality of heart condemnation. Let me, let me just quickly what, how, what this means. I was at eight years old. I was caught. I was caught. I was caught stealing. And, and you know, you could guess what I was caught stealing at eight year olds from Sunflower Grocery Store in Laurel, Mississippi. I'm sure there's still a record of this wrong there. It plagues me in the back of my mind. I was caught stealing baseball cards. Did I mention the Cubs won the World Series? No, right? It was was called stealing baseball cards. Now, I was eight years old. I had professed faith in Christ at six. I had been baptized. As far as I could tell, really loved the Lord. And I couldn't believe I'd done this. I'd just gotten overwhelmed in that moment. And I just stole the baseball cards. My mom found them, had to go back, had to had to ask for forgiveness, had to repay, had to do all the right things. All is forgiven. But you know, I'm laying on my bed at night and I'm thinking, a Christian would never do this. He would never do that. I can't believe. I can't believe. I'm just flagellating, right? Just continually beating up myself for something that God has paid for. Something that man has forgiven me for. And I begin to wonder whether or not I truly... Even knew the Lord. When we're talking about loving each other and living sacrificially as an evidence of saving faith and we can see all the ways in which we fall short in that, don't you begin to wonder, do I know the Lord? Do I know the Lord? Really? Even when I do things that are right, I don't like doing them. Like I'm mad about it. It's got to be something wrong, deep. Yeah, it is something wrong, pretty deep. Am I really a child of God? I want you to notice, John does not use the word guilty. He uses the word condemnation. There is a healthy kind of guilt when you have done wrong and you feel guilty for it. That's a sign of spiritual health. Okay, Never forget that. Never forget that. We're supposed to feel bad when we do something wrong. That's That's a wonderful gift from the Lord. That feeling of guilt when you're actually guilty. It's really concerning when you don't feel guilt and you're actually guilty. Like we have words for that. Really concerning words about what that means about conscience. And sense of right and wrong. All of those sorts of things. It's not what John's saying here. He's saying when you live a condemned life. You're living as if there's no hope for me. I'm past the point of rescue. There's no way that a Christian, anyone who could be a believer would do the thing that I'm going to do and wallow in the despair of that moment. John wants to say, no, that's a lie from the evil one. That's a lie from the evil one. There is the reality of guilt. There is the reality of sin. And yes, there is the brokenness of the fact that you fall short Every single day of your life. But if you live in a state of condemnation. When your heart says you're not really a believer. Christian would never do this. I can't believe you. You know that internal voice. And you're listening to your heart. More than listening to the God of the gospel. You'll never have confidence to come and ask whatever it is. And know that you will receive it. Because he loves me. You'll never have confidence to walk in obedience in the love of God because you'll live under him like a fierce taskmaster who's always waiting to pull out the hammer to crush you. But if he is greater than your heart, if he is the Supreme Court, and your heart tells you, little local appellate court tells you, you're guilty. And there's there's nothing you can do about it. There's no hope. You're beyond the point of rescue. But the Supreme Court says you're not guilty. Based upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, it utterly destroys the verdict of the heart. And you live by the verdict of the one who says, no, you are right with me based upon what my son has done. Of course you're going to steal baseball cards. Look at you. You're a fool but I say fools like you. That's why I came. I'm here to bring justification to a heart that's constantly condemning you. If you don't have the recognition that God is greater than your heart, and notice, he knows everything. <laughs> you, may, you may read that and go, oh no. Um, oh no, he knows everything. Oh no, no, John means that to encourage you. In fact, if you have that response, you probably have work to do with the Lord. What that means is that as we focus on that one thing that we did wrong, and we obsess about it, and we morbidly introspect about it, and we get absolutely depressed about it, God knows the bigger story about what's true about us. He knows everything about the recognition of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And He's greater than your heart. His tribunal is the greatest of all. And if you have received the verdict of not guilty in Christ from the, greatest, from the greatest Supreme Court imaginable, why would you listen to a weak little appellate court like yourself? It's just lying to you. You see, we see the sin. He sees the fullness of the salvation. We see the trial, he sees the fullness of the sanctification. We see the problem, he sees the fullness of the solution in Jesus. He's greater than our hearts. He can see more than your heart can see. Don't trust the feeling of that heart. Trust the verdict of your God for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. Now that is a heart that's assured before the Lord. That's a heart that prays and asks whatever. That's a heart that says, I want to obey a God like that. That's a heart that now begins to pour out its generosity and love to one another. That's the heart. That's the heart. Because that's the heart that's been grabbed and possessed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, as we make our way through John, I think one of the things to see is just what a student that John is of knowing the struggles that we face in our spiritual lives and how to apply the anecdote of the gospel to them. And then to live on the medicine of that gospel and not to go back to the condemnation. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And I think John knows if you have this impulse in your heart, that gets ensnared in sin, gets caught in condemnation, but then awakens to the gospel, I pray, which is happening to you today, and you run to Jesus for mercy and you begin to experience the freedom and the joy of walking in His way, then that's great evidence that you're a follower of Jesus. If this doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever, keep seeking Christ. Seek Him and you will find Him. Seek Him and you will find Him. He will in no wise cast you out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, reassure these hearts and free us from the condemnation that's created by the fabrication of our minds, by the attacks of the evil one. And let us live in the joy of laying down our lives for one another in the character of, answering the call of gospel love so that we might do it from a place that is confident in Your grace. Flood us with that reality, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.